use the book of second opinions. I think we need to... <laughs> so I want to tell you to open your, open your Bible to the book of second opinions. What I mean by that is, they mention some of the things that so many Christians believe that are actually not even found in the scripture. It's, it's from the book of second opinions. Things like, follow your heart, right? If anything, the Bible says exactly the opposite, that our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. All right, all roads lead to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Um, a good God will never send a good person to hell. I actually discussed it with the Sunday school this, this morning that there is none good but God, right? God is the only good for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think the problem with thinking a good God won't send good people to hell is the fact that we think that people are inherently good, which is not the case according to Scripture. Not just that, God is not just loving and merciful, he's also just. And a good judge needs to punish wrong. So, um, or to think that God will weigh your good against your bad, like there are some heavenly scales or something, and that's not in the Bible. Or God will never allow you, or God will never allow more in your life than you can handle. That's also not true. Lots of things will happen in your life that is more than you can handle. But with Christ, He gives us the strength. So with Him, we can handle those things. But in of, our, of ourselves, definitely, a lot worse things can happen, or a lot greater things than what we can handle. And something else I want to add to the book of Second Opinions is this is incorrect interpretation of Scripture. Things like, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know, verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, that there's this future that God, these plans, that future, this wonderful future that God has in store for everyone. Like, there are truths to that, but the abuse of that, or all things work together for good, and just stopping there. No, all things don't work together for good. In fact, a lot of people end up in hell, and that's not together for good. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So there's a lot of things that we, we, we I just want to say, have become cliched. They're printed on coffee mugs, they're on Facebook, they're on whatever. It's these little nuggets that sound Christian, but they're not. And those are all from the book of Second Opinions. Now, the Bible is not someone's opinion. The Bible is not a book of opinions. The Bible is God's revealed truth. It is it is unchanging, it is not man's words, it is God's words. Now you're open in Second Peter. I want you to look at Second Peter chapter one. And part of this this last point I mentioned about the incorrect interpretation of, of Scripture, I think we find this here in Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty, it says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It's as soon as you take that verse privately to yourself, yes, but privately in the sense of you take it out of what is around it, that we find this opinion that is formed. So no scriptures of private interpretation. And we're going to look at the reverses surrounding this in a moment. God's, well, let me say, if we don't see God's Bible, if we don't see the Bible as God's revelation 
to man and the supreme authority, we cannot, we, you cannot be a strong Christian. You cannot, you don't have a solid foundation. You don't, you, you're built on sand. You need to have the Word of God central in your um, life. And I think this loss of the, the authority of Scripture, the, the central point of Scripture in Christian faith has resulted in weakened preaching. It's resulted in discouraged Bible study. Um, people don't, if you don't think that this is God's revelation, like this is what God spoke to you, if you don't think that, you won't study it like you should. If you don't think that, you'll preach from the book of second opinions. And what happens is these, then doubts start creeping. If you start looking at the Bible and you're like, that's a cool idea, but that's just another man's idea, then it, it brings doubt in your life. You can't speak uh, confidently or authoritatively about what you read in Scripture. And those doubts drain our strength and, those, and that uncertainty paralyzes any good Christian action. It doubts, these doubts drain our strength and it paralyzes our action. Today, I, I'm not going to try and make a case for the Bible. I'm not going to say, this is why you must read the Bible. This is why it's authoritative from the perspective of, well, it's historically it has no errors, or scientifically it has no errors, or geographically it has no errors, or uh, what are the evidences for the manuscripts, and how can we know it's inerrant, and all of that. I'm not, I'm not going the proof route. I am taking what I want to call the presuppositional route, which is, in other words, I am presupposing this to be true. And because it is true, it needs to be consistent. All right? So, in other words, God's Word is true. Therefore, if it makes a prophecy, it will be true. Therefore, if it makes a, state, a claim about science, it will be accurate. Therefore, if it speaks about history, you will be able to verify it. Not, I'm going to, with my mind, philosophize, and I will put the Bible in its rightful place through my own intellect and say, because I've studied this and I see that history is true, because of that, that, now I will believe the Bible. I think that's the wrong place to start. We need to start to say, God's Word is true. It makes those claims. It speaks about inspiration. It speaks about these things. And now, as a Christian, I look at that and I say, now these things flow out. They're products of my assumption that God's Word is true. They're products, the, the historical accuracy, the scientific accuracy, those are products. They aren't proofs to get to that point. Because otherwise, I am the authority. I decide whether God's word is there or not. No, God's word is there. And therefore, I expect certain things to flow from it. And that is the presupposition that we will be taking um, or in entering this study. Also, I must be honest, I don't know if the proofs are so effective when it comes to sharing the faith with someone. Because a lot of people, when you speak to people, they'll say... Um, I don't believe the Bible, okay? So then we almost feel like we have to go to, well, I'll prove to you, look at prophecy, look at this. And so it has a place. But if evidence was what people were seeking after before they believed the Bible, then everyone would have believed Jesus. 
He did miracles amongst people in public, yet people crucified him. If evidence, if miracles, if proofs were the thing, then when, when that rich man was in Abram's bosom and Lazarus was also there, and that rich man said, please send Lazarus to go warn my brothers of this, this, this evil place to come. And he was told that they have Moses and the prophets. If they did not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe if someone is resurrected from the dead. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming, but people don't believe it. It's not evidence that's the problem. It's not proof that is the problem. And that's why I'm saying the proofs and all these things strengthen my faith. But it didn't bring me to faith. And so, yes, there is a place for that. But I really think we miss, we really miss the, the core if we say that I am going to intellectually persuade you of the position of the Bible, and then you'll be saved. Now, this needs to, the Word of God needs to be preached. It says that by the foolishness of preaching, God, God chose to save people. It sounds like foolishness to, God, to, to the world, but foolishness with God is so much more than any intellect than, that any human can have. There's an analogy that uh, stuck with me since the first day I heard it, and I think, I'm, I think I may have spoken to you about it, but it's this idea that God's word is a sword, right? It's in scripture, so it's a valid illustration. But here's someone who comes to a sword fight. Imagine this is a witnessing encounter or whatever. You're talking to someone about God, God's word, and you say, here's my sword. Let me tell you what the sword says what the sword can do. Let me show you what the sword can do. And so you open your Bible and someone says, I don't believe the Bible. Okay? Now you're in a sword fight. Okay, you're standing with a guy, you're in a sword fight. If someone says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't believe in the Bible, does that make your fight easier or more difficult? It makes it easier because he doesn't have a sword. Yeah. Right? You have the sword. It doesn't mean all of a sudden because someone doesn't believe in your sword that you say, oh, well, then let me hide that from you. Like, that's not how you approach a sword battle. If you have the sword and the other guy does not have the sword, then you are at a, a position of authority. That's not the point where you start saying, well, let me tell you about steel. <laughs> so, steel comes from the ground, and we melt it. And we make it hard, we make it strong, we temper it, and we do all these things, and then we sharpen it, and then we make a hand, like trying to convince him, give him evidence, give him proof that this is a sword, and it's real. That's not what you do. You, you have the sword, and you tell that person, well, the Bible says. Now, does that mean you cannot say anything about the proof of the sword? Of course you can. But you don't hide your sword when someone doesn't believe in the sword. Because if you're a Christian, you know that the knowledge of God, that law is written on their heart, and that they aren't people as atheists, technically, they are only anti-theists. They are only people who suppress the knowledge of God. In other words, you know there's something inside of them that as soon as you pick up the scripture and you read it to them, whether they believe it or not, something inside of them goes, what if that's true? 
And that is why you don't hide your sword. You use your sword. And we need to get back to the authority of Scripture. Some people say Scripture is not relevant anymore. It's written 2,000 years ago. Okay. Well, does God change? No. Does our sinful nature change? Does the fact that we sin, the fact that we fall short of the glory of God, I'm not saying life hasn't changed. I'm not saying we drive in donkey cars. I'm not saying, like, culturally we've changed. But the core, our soul, who we are, what we need, has that changed? No. And God hasn't changed. So if God revealed this to us, surely it still applies. I understand you're going to have to maybe dig in some history books to understand the culture of the day because it's not like it is today anymore, but the truth in it, it, by none ever was refuted, as it says in the Bible stands, the song we sang. So, today I want to look at the Bible. It's the Word of God. It is the final authority pertaining to all issues of life. And God wrote it. Listen to that. God wrote it. And he wrote it for us. He revealed himself to us. I don't want to get it. We'll, we'll get to inspiration, all of that just now. But he wrote it to us, for us to grow, for us to learn. And so we're not going to address all the doctrines. We're not going to address everything that the Bible teaches. All those things are important. But if you do not have scripture in your life, as the authority, the, the primary guide in your life, the, the thing that helps you make decisions, the thing that guides you, the thing that teaches you about salvation, the thing that makes you grow closer to God, the thing that sanctifies you, if that is not where Scripture is, why would I teach you the doctrines of Scripture? First, the authority of Scripture needs to be established in your life. The importance of Scripture needs to be established in our lives before we can say, oh, but this is what the Bible says about this and that and that. It needs to first have authority in your life. Now, I can't give it that authority, but I can show you that it is authoritative. I can show you where it comes from. I can show you what the Bible says about it. So, we're going to look at three things this morning. All right. The importance, the importance of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and the impact of Scripture. You can see I really didn't optimize my process this morning because I have a big board that's currently glowing and I don't have these things on the big board. <laughs> okay, so we're looking at the Bible. And I want to say first, it's importance. And secondly, it's inspiration. And thirdly, it's impact. All right, before we get into that, let's just pray together. Father, we ask you this morning that you will please close the book of second opinions in our lives, Lord. Open our eyes to the truth of Scripture. Teach us, Lord. Um, Lord, we want to hear more about you, Lord. We, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in Scripture that we don't have to walk through this life blindly wondering um, what it is that that you want, what it is that um, you came for, what your purpose is with our lives, all these questions that, that we have in our hearts, Lord, that you've answered them in Scripture. And 
that you didn't leave us in darkness, Lord, but that you sent your word, which is a light unto our path. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We can just spend a little time, pause, and just look at your Bible. Please, Lord, come speak with us. Work through me, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so importance of Scripture. Um, Botma, you can put on the first slide. I put these on the board because my list was getting very long and I realized I'm not going to be able to just read them to you. Um, it's going to go missing somewhere. So they're on the board. I think they're maybe a bit small. Can you all see? Is it okay? Okay. So the scripture is important because it is needful. In Luke 10, verse 39 to 42, we read about Martha and Mary. And, so, and, she, say, and she had a sister called Mary which was also, this is now Martha, she had a sister called Mary, which was sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Okay, so that's what, that's what happened. She's hearing Jesus' word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Better therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. One thing is needful. What? She sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That is the one thing that is needful, because that thing cannot be taken away from her. Job chapter 23, verse 12, Job speaking, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I am not there. I love food. <laughs> I'm not there. But I want to be there. God's word being so important, more than my necessary food. That is what the Bible says about its need. In Matthew 4, verse 4, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but Jesus answering the devil said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. How many words? <laughs> every word. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need to understand our need for God's word. Secondly, it helps us in our fight against sin. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall the young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. According to God's word. Psalm 919.11 Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Everything is surrounded around God's word. Ephesians 6 verse 11 But put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Then it goes through the list and then it says and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. That is your only weapon in your armor to fight against sin. It's your only offensive piece of armor, the Word of God. So the Word of God is central in the fight against sin. In sanctification, John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy Word is truth. Sanctification is by the Word of God. Ephesians 5, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, speaking about the church, with the washing of water by the Word. Just through the Word, by the Word, sanctification, fight against sin. Next one. 
Faith and salvation. Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Our rebirth, our salvation, our hearing of faith is centered around God's word. Ephesians 1, verse 13 says, In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth. It's only after you heard the word of truth that you could trust it, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Faith and salvation is centered around God's word. Discernment, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, speaking about those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. If you don't know the scriptures, how will you know what the word that you're receiving, whether it is of God or not? You need to know the scriptures, whether those things were so. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You need to be able to say, that is, applies to that, that applies to that. You can discern, you can understand. Discernment, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It discerns our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. You're probably familiar with James chapter 1, which speaks about God's Word as this mirror that you look into. And the moment you look at God's Word and you really read it, and it starts getting right in there where it's needful, right there where you know you're struggling, right there where you know you need to change, God's Word discerns the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And so it, the Bible is vital for our discernment. And then it also it's in an elevated position and that is that in Psalm 138, verse 2, it says, For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God has magnified his word, that which he has said above all his name. And so when we look at the importance, our first point, the importance of Scripture, it is important for so many aspects of our life. We need it. We need it to fight against sin and sanctification, faithful in, in faith and salvation, in discernment and to understand its position, its elevation. So God's word is incredibly important. And I, I can't, I mean, through the rest of the, 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 the sermon, I guess you'll see also why it is, but the importance of God's word needs to be central in your life. You, you cannot be, like I said, a strong Christian. You cannot grow in faith. You cannot any of these things without God's word. It needs to be central in your life. And that brings me to what I want to speak about next, and I guess the most is inspiration. So you're in Second Peter, I think. Second Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1. Now let's read from, let's read from verse 16. It says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made, made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory 
when they came, uh, when there came such a voice unto him from the excellent glory, that the, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So this is God speaking about Jesus. And they were witnesses of it. That's what Peter is saying. Verse 18, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. This is in the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus went up and he took Peter with him. Peter's talking about we were there with him and we heard this voice. Then it says verse 19, But we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place unto this day, um, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now, just think about that. Peter is saying in verse 19, we have a more sure word of prophecy. He's contrasting that against what? Them hearing God's voice coming down from heaven as the dove ascends on Jesus. He's saying that I have a more sure word of prophecy and you'll see, speaking of Scripture, when, uh, than what I have when I went with him on this mount of transfiguration. It's more sure than that. That is incredible. Verse 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in all time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Prophecy came not by the will of man. Scripture came not by the will of man. What desire, what, would, what desire of us, what desire could there be in us that would want us to create a system such as this, where animals had to be sacrificed and then we, we, we're all going to hell unless we believe in this? Like, what would make you want to think that? It's not by the will of man. It is revelation from God. That is what Scripture is. It is God's revelation. We would not know this if God did not reveal this to us. We could not have philosophized this. We could not have come with our intellect and made this system over 4,000 years and 2,000 years and put it all together, make it consistent. We couldn't do that. We wouldn't want to do that. But God did it in such a way, and he revealed himself to us. I always think about, when I, when I think about revelation like this, I cannot know any of you more than you reveal yourself to me. I can sit around you, but if you're just sitting looking at me, that, okay, awkward. <laughs> I can't know anything about you unless you say, you know what, when I was at school, I did this, or I like that, or, you know, I used to, like, oh, I know something about you. Why? Did I make it up? No. You revealed it. We would not know anything about God if he did not reveal it to us. Even general revelation is something he reveals. Creation, conscience, all that. It's given by God. It is not without God. So revelation, uh, this revelation that we have is it's, it's a gift from God. We even, if you think about your relationship with, if you think of a husband or a wife or, let's say, children and parents, that relationship, if, if I don't tell my child something, do not go and do that, and they go and do that, 
then they ignored the revelation. But if I'd never told them that, I can't say, I told you so, or why did you do that, or, like, I need to have said, don't do that. If the child goes and says, I don't want to hear, they're still guilty. If you say, I have this, it's God's revelation, I don't want to hear, you're still guilty. We need to take God's word. That child needs to listen. And once that child has heard, he knows whether he's doing right or wrong. We need to reveal, or let me say, God has revealed certain things to us. We need to respond to that revelation. Have a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, yeah, you can turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 that we just looked at, it says, holy men were moved by the Holy Ghost. So when it comes to inspiration, we are not saying that people were puppets in the sense that there's no personality in Scripture. Everything is exactly the same regardless of the... There's definitely personality in Scripture. There is... Think of it as a, a good way to think about it is, 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 is a boat and a sail that is filled with something and that is moved by that wind. The boat still looks like the boat. The boat still has its colors. The boat still has its type of sail and that one has its type of sail and all of that. But it's the wind which moves it in the direction which it wants to go. So God is working through that man as he is writing to say, yes, I want you to speak about that. Now speak about it the way it happened. Your person, you can speak about it, but speak about it, about this, not about that. Include that, more of that, linger on that, whatever. God is moving that boat, but the boat still has its own personality. That's why you can see the people in the book, but it's moved by God. And in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, verse 16, I'm sure you are familiar with this, but this is the doctrine of inspiration. So this adds to what we saw in, 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 in um, 2 Peter. Verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay. It is given by inspiration of God. Now, what does this word inspiration mean? Okay, that's one of the parts. And that's the other part. It's a combined word. Theo, neustos. Okay, that's two words. Now, you may know this word from pneumatics. Who knows what pneumatics is? It's things that function with air, all right? Pneumatics, okay, new, air. That's the, the spirit. That's the wind of God, okay? And Theo is God, Theos. So, God breathed, God moved, air, spirit, that's what it is. That's what the word inspire means. Now, there are, this is important how this, can I say, fits into this whole picture because God's, we saw that God is that wind that moves that sail. He moved that ship, he moved that sail, okay? So there's the breathing. It is God's breath. Now, you may think of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God created man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into it the Spirit, and it became a living soul, right? So, 
when we have, in, we have, when we have Scripture, we see in Second Peter, men are writing it, God is moving it. Then we have this inspiration. God then goes and he says, I quicken it, for the word of God is quick and sharper than any two. It's alive. Just like God breathed life into man, God breathed life into his scripture. He said, that which you have written, the way you have written it, I'm in that. I bring it to life. I speak to you through that. But the important thing is, it's his spirit. In basic discipleship, lesson one, 1 Corinthians chapter two, we speak about the spirit and how spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And without the Spirit of God, it is impossible for man to know the things of God. And so God's Word is moved by the Spirit, it's then quickened by the Spirit, and then it's interpreted by the Spirit. God's Spirit is all through this doctrine of inspiration. So God revealed Himself to us through His Word. It is His Word, and we need to treat it as such, we need to listen to it as such. Not just a book of morals. Yes, it has instruction and morals and all these things. We'll look at some of this stuff now, but it's God's word. It's what he wants you to know. It's what he wants me to know. We need to spend more time in it. We need to grow. We need to learn. We need to see what God wants us to know. He did not leave us empty. He did not leave us blind, but he is a light on this road for us. So, It's important to understand that because in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, it speaks about God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts. We cannot grasp God, not even with his revelation. So to say, I'm closing my ears, is not going to get you anywhere. We need to say, God, as much as I can, show me. Show me. Teach me. We want to know more about God. We want to see how he's revealed himself to be and not how the book of second opinions reveals him to be. All right. Lastly, I want to talk about the impact. The impact of scripture. Now you can stay open in Second Timothy. Second Timothy, we see that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So what is the impact? Well, if you see God's word as inspired, as his revelation to us, it will affect the doctrine. It will affect what you believe, essentially. It has to. If you see this is God's words to me, this is what he wants me to know, It has to affect your doctrine. And doctrine has to affect the way you live. If you see, if you view God in this way, it has to affect, it trickles down to the way you conduct yourself. If you believe that this life is not all there is and that there is a heaven because God revealed it to be that, not because you thought of that, because God revealed it to be that, then it has to affect the way you live on a day-to-day basis. If God says that the people outside who don't have Christ are going to hell, it has to change the way you view the people outside. It has to change the way. The the doctrine affects the conduct. And so seeing God's word as inspired, not optional, not an opinion, not just another idea of man, 
has to change the way you live. It has to have an impact in your life. As long as you view it as just, hmm, cool, this is interesting philosophy, this is interesting thought, it's not going to affect your life. The moment you see it as, this is what God revealed, this is what he wants me to know, this is what I need to live according to, then it changes the way you live. It also says, reproof, it's given for reproof and correction. Now, reproof is rebuking something that you're doing wrong or rebuking something that you believe wrong. That's reproof, okay? So something is wrong and it needs to be rebuked. Either something you're doing, either something you're believing, that needs to be rebuked. That's what you use scripture for. You don't rebuke someone with your opinion, okay? You rebuke someone with scripture. The truth in love. So if something is wrong, if something is out of line, you don't go to second opinions and say, that's why you're wrong. You go to the scripture and you say, it's inspired by God. And because I want you to know what God says about this, I want you to know how God is going to keep you accountable. I want to show you what God has said about this thing that is wrong. Okay? And you need to be open to that same type of reproof. If someone comes to you and says, I'm concerned about this, or I see this lacking, or it needs, and you need to be able to say, yeah, scripture, it is lacking, or it needs to be more. Get back to the Bible. Now, what is the difference between reproof and correction? Reproof is, you did this wrong. Correction is, this is what you should do. This is, this is how you, if something falls over, you correct it, okay? That's correction. Not just, you fell over, and that's why you fell over. <laughs> how do you get back up? Reproof and correction. God is not just about whacking you and saying you did this wrong. That's not, he's there to help you back up. He's there to help you in the right way. He wants to be your fellow laborer. He wants to be yoked with you together. And so we need to walk in that knowledge. So reproof and rebuke. Oh, and correction. And then lastly, it says instruction in righteousness instruction in righteousness. Now, instruction in righteousness is essentially training to minimize reproof, reproof and correction. Does it make sense? It is training to minimize the reproof and correction required. So, it is not just reactionary. Oh, you messed up, now rebuke, okay, now let's get, it's how do you not fall? How do you stay standing in the faith? How do I instruct you in what is right? Okay? Scripture is for, there for that, so that hopefully, predominantly, your Christian life is made up eventually of instruction in righteousness, so that there is no need for so much reproof and correction. But it may be in the beginning when you're just saved, there may be a lot of reproof and correction, and then it should transition to instruction in righteousness. And that is also the same way with which you need to bring up children, disciple people. You want to instruct them in righteousness. You want to be able to share the truth and love. And that is what Scripture is for. Verse 17 says, 2 Timothy 3.17 says, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is, this word perfect is complete, but another way of looking at it is essentially to say competent or capable 
of doing everything that you are called for. That the man of God may be perfect, that is competent and capable of doing everything that God has called you to do. In order to be, um, be ready to do everything that God has called you for, you need to have these furnished with good works. We want to be able to be fully capable, truly fully, um, truly furnished, that is fully equipped for the work that God has called us to do. Without this um, biblical um, framework, without this, this core position of Scripture in reproving and rebuking and correction and instructing in righteousness and completing a person, without that, society starts to crumble. And we don't have to look far to actually see that in our day and life. We heard, I mean, when we were looking at the minor prophets, we saw at every book how the people were falling away because they were forsaking God. They were forsaking His truth. In Hosea chapter 4, we, we read about my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Right? A lack of knowledge, a lack of God's Word. That is why people are destroyed. That is why society is starting to crumble. And this is not just me preaching, saying that's why society is crumbling, but you can look, and I, I went to go look at the statistics last night, of from 1963, which is the year after prayer and, um, prayer and Bible reading was removed in American schools. 1962 it was removed. 1963 the statistics compared to later on, the statistics I found took a 30 year, it took from 63 to 93. I mean, it's changed a lot again in the last 30 years. But in that time, you have teenage pregnancies going from 15 in 1,000 to 45 in 1,000. Three times, and that's in those three years. And this is not population growth, right? Population, let me draw you a graph. I like graphs. Okay, now this is quantity. This is time, okay? This is population growth, just for illustration. This is 1963, that is 1993. The, the, it looks something like this, and then it does that. There is where it was. That's where it was 30 years later. It was slowly increasing before it, but there, a sudden increase. That is pre teenage pregnancies. Then you have violent crime rates. Violent crime rates in, in that same time period increased 10 times. Ten times. Single mother households increased from 5 million to 12 million households. And it outgrows population growth by far. So it's not just related to more people. It is from that point in history where the Bible and prayer was removed from schools. I am not vouching for institutionalized Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you take the framework, if you take what God has given us, if you say, this is what God has said, and this is what he will hold you accountable to, if you take that away, it's really just that little subjective consciousness that sort of guides. And that is, if you know anything about what's happening in the world, it, it's just becoming more and more subjective every day. What was an absolute disgust in the 1960s is as common as anything else today. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, is that we cannot take culture as our reference point for our Christianity. The Bible stands. 
We cannot say, okay, so this was the moral standard in that time. So that's the moral standard of that time. So Christianity needs to be about, yeah, about, let's say, 10 years behind, whatever. That's where Christianity needs to be. And now, this is where it is today. So where is Christianity supposed to be there? It's worse than it was. You cannot say Christianity is based on social norm minus 10. Christianity is based on Scripture. Christianity is based on the revelation of God. The Bible stands. Nothing changes. We live differently. We dress differently. All that changes. But the truth of Scripture does not change. And we should not look like a dressed-down worldly person. That's not the way we should live. Our life should look different. What we think should be different. What we emphasize should be different. It can't just be a, 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 a lost person minus whatever, drinking minus that. that. That's not Christianity. That's just a more moral atheist. <laughs> you, get, you, get, you get atheists who are more moral than some people who claim to be Christian by far. And that is an absolute shame. I'm not vouching for their Christianity in any sense, but we cannot say, okay, the world says that and that and that, and therefore I will just do a little bit less or not. or No. The Bible. Not second opinions, not the social structure, not the norms, not my feelings, nothing. God's Word. That must stand. We've touched on a lot of things, but I just want to bring two things to your, to your memory as we close again. And that is this. This is so important. Inspiration. This is not an A. Inspiration. And what I want to add to that is presuppositionalism. That, that idea that the Bible is true and therefore that. Not if I can just muster up enough proof or evidence then finally the Bible can be where it should be. You are, you are decreasing the authority of Scripture by doing that. You are essentially saying it can only be as high as I can lift it. And that is completely wrong. You need to put Scripture all the way up there, and then it trickles down to what you do, what you don't do, how you live, what you say, what you think, all of that. All issues of life stem from that. And so inspiration vital, but it can only, you can only view inspiration the way you do if you presuppose its authority. So it needs to take that authoritative part in your life. So let me ask you, where does the Bible feature in your life? Where does it feature in my life? How does it affect the way I think? How does it affect my schedule? How does it affect the things that I do and don't do? I can't answer that for you. Think for yourself, how does the Bible affect my life? What guides your decision-making process? What guides your thought life? What guides your response to, to sin, hardship, tribulation? What guides that? Is it a verse from second opinions, like God will not give me more than I can handle, or all things will work together for good? Or is it 
Is it based in truth? We need to get ourselves back to God's scripture because otherwise we can stand here week after week and say, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, the Bible says that, the Bible teaches this doctrine. But if, if scripture is not there, what's going to make you say, I have to listen, I have to implement, I have to adhere? If it's not there, nothing's going to change that. But let me also just say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when it speaks about spiritual things being spiritually discerned, it says there, but we have the Spirit, right? We have the mind of Christ. It is given to us through Jesus Christ. That's one of the benefits of salvation. If you are not saved, the Bible can form some sort of structure. I think it does. It historically has. But it's not alive to you. It's not quick. It's not powerful. It's just, instead of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules of life, I have the Bible's 10 commandments of life. It's just, you choose your set of rules. It's good to have rules. But the Bible is more than a rule book. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides. It gets in there. You need to, we need to, I need to, Spend more time in God's word and have it guide us, direct us, and shape our lives. Let's all pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you did reveal yourself to us and that your, your word, Lord, whether we, whether we believe it to be or not, whether we emphasize it, it is the truth. It is the only um, absolute authority. And Lord, uh, we are being bombarded every day with more and more opinions, with more and more subjectivity, with more and more philosophy, with more and more all of these other worldviews, Lord. And help us to stand, Lord. We'll only be able to stand if we can search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to be discerners of your word, um, to be um, emboldened by your word, to be strengthened by your word. And, Lord, I, your word is necessary for not just the growth after salvation, but to bring people to the cross. Without your word, Lord, we wouldn't understand the gospel. We wouldn't understand the purpose of Christ. We wouldn't understand even the need for Jesus to have come. And so Lord, I thank you for revealing all of this to us. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us in, in darkness, trying to find our way in a room with no light. But Lord, that when your Bible is open, that whole room is lit. And we can understand things that are happening, things that have happened, things that will happen, the purpose of my life, the reason I'm here, what you want for people, what you have in store for all of this, Lord. These big questions are answered because, Lord, you love us so much, you revealed it to us. And if someone has not seen that revelation yet, Lord, if someone's not saved, Lord, please, please come reveal yourself to them. We thank you so much, Father, for this time. Thank you for your scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.